don't need to preach after that prayer. Kind of covered it all, huh? We're continuing on in our refresh series this morning as we're remembering all that the Lord Jesus has taught us about the church. This morning's sermon is on church discipline. I've got five points for you this morning, note takers. I'm going to give them to you now and then hopefully I catch them all as we run back through the sermon. Here they go. The God of discipline. The God of discipline. Number two, the need for discipline. Number three, the process of discipline. Number four, the aim and hope of discipline. And then number five, objections to discipline. Point number one, the God of discipline. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, we read these words. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. I want to begin this this morning's sermon by showing you the roots of church discipline. I, I want to begin point number one by showing you that discipline is not rooted primarily in the teachings of parachurch organizations like Nine Marks Ministries, or in Baptist ecclesiology in general, or even more broadly in the tradition known as the Protestant Reformation. Rather, I want us to see in this first point of this morning's sermon that church discipline is ultimately rooted in the nature of God himself, who is our perfectly loving Heavenly Father. So, said another way, the reason why church discipline is in the Bible is because the God of the Bible is a God of loving discipline. So, before we go any further, let's make sure that we're all on the same page about what discipline is. Let's define our terms. Generally speaking, discipline can be both formative and corrective. Formative discipline could just be referred to as discipleship, right? That's all the proactive stuff that we do to build one another up in the faith, That's the stuff that we can pretty easily get on board with. Not a lot of argument there. But then in the church, there's corrective discipline. This is the stuff that's harder for us to understand. In our minds, we think, okay, God can discipline us, but the idea that an institution ordained by God, well, that's a little bit harder for me to to work through. Corrective discipline is reactive in nature. This is the thing that we do as a church in response to sin and false teaching in the body. So let me give you a simple working definition of corrective discipline, okay? It's loving correction that conforms us to the will of God. Loving correction that conforms us to the will of God. We could look at any number of places in Scripture to see this loving correction flow out of the heart of God to His people. We could look in Exodus, for example, where we see God's people kept in the wilderness for 40 years that they might be sanctified. That's the same language from Hebrews chapter 12 that I just read. We could also look at Leviticus 26, where in that one chapter, three separate times, God says some equivalent of, if you don't listen to me, If you don't obey my law, if you will not let yourself be trained by my discipline, then things will get bad for you. We could even look much later in the story of redemption, during the time of exile in Babylon. There, too, we would see the language of God's loving discipline. Listen to what God tells his people Israel as they languish away. I will discipline you in just measure... And I will by no means leave you unpunished. Those are not the words of an angry father towards his rebellious children that he is about to smite off the face of the earth. No, that's God saying, I love you. I know things are bad. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, but don't worry. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to bring you back. But for the sake of brevity and clarity, Uh, rather than looking at all those places throughout the entirety of the Bible, let's just go back to Hebrews 12, 
Our sister Courtney already read it for us this morning, and she did a fantastic job. Just a, your every so often reminder how hard it is to come up here and, and do stuff like that and read in front of a room full of people, and you did a great job. Thank you for serving us, sister. But let's just walk through Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we'll start probably in verse 5, the second half of verse 5, and we're just going to tr- track the logic of, of, of the author here. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Yeah, it's, it's hard to be under discipline, right? Nobody likes it. Nobody likes to get a spanking. Why? Verse 6. Well, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises everyone whom he receives. Sometimes when we're chastised, when we're disciplined, we feel like the person who's disciplining us doesn't love us. And the author of Hebrews is trying to flip that on his head. He's trying to say, listen, when you're chastised, that should actually feel like evidence that you are loved, that you do belong to God. And then he's going to elaborate further. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. So I know you feel like God's treating you like an enemy right now, but actually he's treating you like a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Guys, I don't know if you know this. Kids, pay attention real quick. I don't know if you know this. Patience, Bella, Maddox, Isley, pay attention. It's not easy to discipline you. Okay, kids, your parents don't love spanking you. We don't get a thrill out of putting you on time out or having you go and do extra chores or not letting you go out of the house. We want you out of the house. It is not our heart's delight to discipline you. Why do we do it? We do it because we care enough about you to inflict a little bit of pain in your life so that you won't have to endure a lot more pain later on in your life. Go back to your drawing or pay attention. (laughs) Verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best for them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Brothers and sisters, the reason why church discipline is in the Bible is because our heavenly Father has made us his children. He loves us. And although he does discipline us on an individual basis through circumstance and providence in our life, the most normal way that God has of disciplining his children is in the church. The church discipline is the mechanism by which God demonstrates his love for us in the body. So if corrective discipline is an expression of God's love for his children, then it shouldn't surprise us to find that as part of God's good design for the church. So what is church discipline? It is the loving process by which God removes sin from our midst. The loving process by which God conforms us to his will, not individually, but as a church. We'll talk more about the process of church discipline in point number two. For now, let's go to point number two, the need for discipline. Why do we need church discipline? Right? We saw why God does it. He does it because it's in his nature. He loves us, and part of his love towards sin is to correct it. But why do we need it? I'm going to give you seven reasons. Yes, this will be the longest point in the sermon. Yes, these are subpoints, seven subpoints. I'm just going to hit them as I go. First one, church discipline protects the unity of the church. I don't have anything particularly insightful to say here. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights as we've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians for the last two years, 
then you've seen how the unity of that church was under constant threat and it was owing entirely to sin. Sexual sin, the sins of partiality, the sin of rejecting right doctrine. We could just kind of go on and on and on, but sin was threatening the unity of the church. And that's not surprising. It doesn't surprise us that sin is in the church. The church is not a place where we would expect to find a bunch of perfect people. What is surprising, what was surprising to Paul, was that this sin was going unaddressed. This thing that was threatening the body existentially was just not being dealt with. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says this, we must eagerly, eagerly, you know that new thing that you're excited about that you can't wait to buy, you're saving up money for, or taking out debt for, hopefully the first, not the second, eager, right? We should be eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit. We already have the unity of the Spirit. God has given it to us in Christ. We're already all part of the same body. But sin is threatening to tear us apart limb by limb. And so we have to be on guard against that. And one of the ways that we are on guard against that is by taking advantage of all the means that God has given us to fight sin in the church. One of those is church discipline. Number two, it protects the holiness of the church. It protects, church discipline protects the holiness of the church. So let's just stop right here and, and remember what a church is. A church is not a social club. A church is not a political party or platform, nor should it be too closely aligned to any one of them. A church is not primarily, primarily a place for skeptics or seekers trying to figure out what they believe. A church is rather a community of those who have been saved by Christ. In Scripture, the church is so intimately connected to the person of Jesus Christ that it is talked about as being his very body, as intimately connected as my body is to my head, so is Christ connected to his church. So seekers may visit, skeptics may explore, unbelievers may investigate the church and, and be here with us, and if that's you this morning, I'm glad you're here and I, I want you to be here, but the church itself is not composed of anyone that is outside of the body of Christ, those who have been called to be holy, justified, sanctified. We are not a gathering of goats. We are not a gathering of goats and sheep. We are sheep. This is what makes us holy. This is what makes us distinct from the world. Our holy God has called us into his holiness, having made us holy with his holy son, Jesus Christ. And when we gather together as a body, Sixth Avenue Community Church, we picture that holiness to an unholy world. So, when we allow people to be members of our church who are not holy, who have not been set apart, who are not belonging to the Lord who have not been united to Christ, well, then we are diluting, we are watering down that holiness. The church is the holy body of Christ. Church discipline is the immune system of that body, removing any impurities that try to infiltrate and destroy the body's health. Anything that would blur the vision of holiness to a lost and dying world. You see this concept explicitly. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. An overview of the situation of, of these verses that we just read. There's sexual sin in the church. And of a kind that even pagans look at and go, whoa, that's intense. And apparently, the brothers and sisters at Corinth, maybe because they have a, an antinomian understanding of the gospel, they're kind of celebrating it. Yeah, God's grace, you know, it can shine especially powerful here. Paul says, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be proud about this, you should be mourning. And then Paul tells them what to do, he tells them to practice church discipline, that's 
verses 3 all the way down through verse 5. Put this person out from among you. But then, look at verses 6 and 7. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Do you see Paul's logic here? He envisions the body of Christ as a lump of dough. He envisions sin as leaven, which subtly, imperceptibly, you can't see it, it permeates the entire lump. He says, listen, you are unleavened. You are holy. There is no leaven of sin amongst you. That's what it means to be a church. But if you as a church perceive that the leaven of sin begins to infiltrate your body, you have to remove it. You have to try to remove that impurity so that you can be as holy as you really are. That is Paul's logic. So we practice church discipline, friends, as clearly, explicitly commanded in Scripture so that we can protect the holiness of the church. Number three, church discipline protects God's glory in the church. So I think we pretty clearly see that holiness is an important aspect of who we are as a church, but now I want us to see that the holiness of God's church is inextricably connected to the glory that God receives through his church. So a diminishment in the holiness of the church equals a diminishment in God's glory perceived through the church. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse 10. <clears throat> Talking about the second coming of the Lord, it says, "When He comes on that day, that final day of judgment, the day of the Lord, He will receive glory from His holy people." Turn with me to First Peter chapter two. Verse 9, we read this verse at the beginning of every members meeting, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. <coughs> But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. You see that? It's something about having been called out of the darkness into the light, out of the world, into the kingdom of heaven out of sin into holiness that makes us then turn around and want to tell anyone and everyone about the excellencies of the one who has saved us. And only those who have been called can proclaim the excellencies of him who called them. Only those who have come out of the darkness and into the light can proclaim the excellencies of the one who called them out of the darkness. They're the only ones who would even have a desire to do so. A church full of unregenerate people will not glorify God because they cannot. We glorify God for what he's done for us. And if God hasn't done anything for us, there's nothing for us to give. So when the church is full of unbelievers, when the gathering becomes unholy with just as many goats as sheep, Well then, friends, we will be a church that not only doesn't do a good job of glorifying God, we just won't even care about glorifying God. And friends, I have been to churches like this, and I'm sure you have too. But when the church is full of believers, we will be a people supremely concerned with proclaiming God's glory 
And if the balance of the church begins to shift, if we begin to see goats infiltrating the sheep, church discipline is the mechanism that God has given us to put them out from our midst so that we can do that which he has called us to do. Number four, church discipline protects the identity of the church. This one's going to be fast. The simple logic here goes like this. If God disciplines those whom he loves, then to not practice church discipline is to treat the church as if she is not beloved by God. You tracking? Say that one more time, and then I'll move right on. If discipline, if God disciplines those whom he loves, all of his legitimate children, then to not practice church discipline is to deny the church her rightful status as the beloved of God. Number five, church discipline protects the members of the church. It protects the members of the church. Church discipline is not just a protection for the body, but also individually for members of it. If, if you, as a church, see a person not living like a Christian on their way to hell, and that's not corrected, it's not addressed, you may begin to believe that that's what it means to be a Christian. And if we let you believe that, we're not loving you. We're not protecting you. Moreover, that individual Christian who's on the path to hell, if we don't say anything to them about it, how are we loving them? When you enter into a covenant with this church, we agree to protect one another. Even if you say, I don't want your protection. Well, that's not really how it works. You know? A kid running out in the middle of the street to go grab his ball doesn't want you to come and grab him by the scruff of the neck and yank him back into the yard as a car narrowly hits him. But, you know, it's, that's kind of not really part of the equation. What could be more unloving than to see someone on the path to hell and to just let them keep going? Number six, church discipline protects the witness of the church. We've already talked about how discipline is an expression of God's love towards his fallen people. Right? Were they not fallen, discipline may not be present, but they are and so it is, and that's an aspect of God's love. Listen to what Jesus says in John 13. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. So the world will know that you belong to me. You will be my witnesses amongst the earth by this. By what, Jesus? If you have love for one another. Friends, so often in the church, we try to protect or establish our witness to the world by becoming like the world. And not only is that stupid, but we also aren't very good at it. Just think about all the bad Christian rock music that's been made over the years. You know, just us trying to be like you, but we can't even do it as good as you. Think about Christian nightclubs, you know, just, I could just go on and on example of Christians who are like, I know how we're going to reach the world. We're going to be just like them, except for not quite as good as them. This is backwards. Our witness to the world is not, hey, look at us. We're just like you. No, our witness is, hey, look at us. We're not like you. We're not better than you, but we're not like you. Because we don't belong to you. We belong to the Lord. And you should see something in us that makes you go, mm, I want that. One of the ways that we show ourselves as those who are distinct from the world is by practicing a love that is not of this world. A love that comes from heaven, a holy love. A love that not only affirms but also corrects. A love that not only sympathizes, but also disciplines. A love that not only receives, but also corrects. A love of both affection and authority. This love is seen in church discipline. And according to John 13, it's one of the ways that the world will know that we belong to Jesus. So if you look at a church where a bunch of people just are there and they tolerate sin and they tolerate false teaching and no one's doing anything about any of it, and they think that the world will look at them and go, oh man, look at them, those people, they're just so loving and accepting. Friends, that church is delusional. In a church like that, the world will not see any 
form of distinct witness. They will just see more of themselves. Number seven, church discipline pr protects, <laughs> protects conversion in the church. Conversions. To politicians, uh, the term Christian is just a voting demographic. To many in the Bible Belt, Christian is just a cultural identifier. Confusion about what it means to be a Christian is one of the most significant threats looming over the church today. It is a greater threat than a hostile presidential administration. Not knowing what a Christian is is a greater threat to the church today than ungodly ideologies that may be infiltrating the church. It is a greater threat to the church than persecution by far. So, what is a Christian? Well, a Christian is someone who, through the finished work of Christ, has received a new nature and a new status, right? Old heart, broken up. Heart of sin, gone. New heart, heart of flesh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. New status, no longer are we under the wrath of God, belonging to the world, orphans to sin, slaves to it. No, we are Children of God, co-heirs, we've been adopted, we take on the family name, we have all the rights, benefits, privileges. This is the reason why places like 2 Corinthians 5.17 use language that is all-encompassing to talk about what it means to be a Christian. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not he has adjusted some of his moral knobs to the left or to the right, not he's begun to align himself with certain cultural values this way or that way. No, he's become a new creature. How new? Well, the old has passed away. All of it. To be a Christian is not only to pass from darkness to light, but it is also to hate the darkness. And then to love the light. And then because of that, to walk in the light even as he is in the light. But friends, so often Christians believe that they can claim the identity of Jesus without believing anything that Jesus taught or living the way that Jesus has commanded. I cannot tell you how often in the South I've asked someone point blank if they were a Christian, only to have them answer in the affirmative, even though I know and they know that they don't believe the stuff written in this book nor do they live according to it. Now listen, I cannot, you cannot, the church cannot control the way every Tom, Dick, and Harry identifies religiously. Right? The census people come around, I'm not going to be standing there, they mark evangelical, be like, are you sure? And thankfully we're not called to do that. But in the local church, we are called to judge the validity of the profession of faith of our fellow believers. Turn with me back to Matthew 18. I know what you guys were thinking. Oh, I hope we get back to Matthew 18 this morning. We haven't had enough of it. Well, don't worry. We're going to do it. You know how this goes because we've talked about it 15 times over the last 15 weeks. If a brother sins against you, you go to him one-on-one. -on -one. If he repents, great. If he doesn't, you go get witnesses. If the witnesses help and he repents, great. If he doesn't, you take it before the church, right? And then in verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. You see what's happening here? According to Jesus, the church is called to render a judgment about whether or not someone who in, professes to be a brother is in fact a brother. That's what's happening here. So 
if the church says, you know, you say that you're a child of God, but you seem to be living like an enemy of God, then what that means is that we must treat that person differently. We must treat them like someone who is, in fact, outside of the body of Christ. We're going to talk more about that in point number three. But Sean, you may object. I I hear it coming. I've heard it a thousand times before. Surely you're not saying that we're supposed to judge other Christians. No, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying we, the church, are called to assess the validity of the profession of faith of those who belong to this church. That's exactly what the Bible says. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 again. Let's just go back there. Here's Paul's rationale about how and why we judge other Christians in the church. And by the way, the we is not you individually, you know. Spencer telling Greg, hey, I don't think you're living up here to your profession of faith. This is something that we do together as a church. Verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. That's kind of hard, Paul. How do you do that in Corinth? Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, that is, those outside of the church, obviously, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. This list is not exhaustive. Not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? And the answer to that rhetorical question is nothing at all. God judges the ones who are outside of the church. So friends, do not get carried away this morning. (laughs) Go to your place of work with your family or friends, wherever you go and congregate with other people for your hobbies, and start saying, hey, I got something to tell you. That's not really your prerogative. God will do that judging. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you, or the, per- the evil person from among you. There's a lot that we could unpack from these verses. We don't have time to do that today. I just want to show, show you that, yes, friend, it is your job as a member of this church to judge. Is it a prideful thing for us, the church, to judge someone's profession of faith? No, I don't think it's prideful to do what Jesus has called us to do. We're going to talk more about what this judgment should look like in point number three, but for now, just know we're not going by some arbitrary set of criteria, you know, I guess I'm an Auburn fan, you're an Alabama fan, I don't like you, you got to go, that kind of thing. No, what we do is we just look at what God's word says about what a Christian is, and then we look at your life and we just compare notes. If we don't practice church discipline, the world will look at the self-righteous soccer mom and think, that's a Christian. If we don't practice church discipline, the world will see the person living in sexual sin and think, oh, that's what it must mean to follow Jesus. Their church hasn't said anything about it. They seem to be okay with it. If we don't do what the Bible says and discipline unrepentant sinners out of the church, the world will look at that pastor caught in sexual sin, scandal, And think, ah, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. Those who are supposed to care for the sheep take advantage of the sheep. Got it. It is up to us, brothers and sisters, to prevent that kind of confusion. Point number three. The process of church discipline. Okay, assuming you're you're bought in on the need to practice it. Well, what does it look like? Well, as we saw earlier in Matthew 18, and we didn't read the whole thing, but we've walked through it so many times in the last couple weeks. If you're a visitor, you're like, are they not going to read that scripture? Friends, trust me. (laughs) We've read it. What you should see from Matthew 18 is that the process begins with you. That's where church discipline begins. It begins with the members of the church. You go to your brother or sister one-on-one and say, I see sin in your life. Let's talk about it. I'm an accountability partner for someone on, with, uh, with someone on Covenant Eyes. 
And uh, recently I got a report and it was not good. And I sent them an email and I said, hey, whenever you're ready, let's talk about this. That's church discipline. And that's where it begins. Just one-on-one conversations like that. You can see this in other places outside of Matthew 18. Galatians 6.1, for example. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You go to your brother and sister. You love them. You, you see sin, you give counsel. You rebuke, you exhort, you pray. You gather other brothers and sisters for counsel, for accountability. And then if it can't be resolved on this one another basis, well then, according to Matthew 18, it comes before the church. What does that look like? We don't understand that church there to be referring to the elders. Nowhere in Scripture does it ever function like that. We understand that to be the assembled ones. In the same way that in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, when you are assembled together in my name, render a judgment. That is, when you come together as a church, you do this. So what does it look like to bring something before the church? You stand up one Sunday morning. I have a grievance to air. Probably not. Probably not that way, you know. Rather, it should probably look something like this. First, the sin issue should be brought before the elders. You remember from a few weeks ago, we said that elders lead the church by leading the church in her exercise of authority. Therefore, the elders should lead the church in the process of church discipline all the way through the process of excommunication. We'll talk more about excommunication in a second. You can think about this process kind of like a trial because it is a trial. There are witnesses, there's a a verdict that's going to be rendered, there's evidence, there's testimonies. So the first step in the trial process is where the elders decide whether or not a particular sin uh, needs to be brought before the entire church, right? So let's say Mark knows about a sin in the church with John. He goes to John, John's unrepentant. Mark goes and he gets one or two people, they all go to John, John's still unrepentant. Well, now Mark goes, hey, uh, elders, can I speak with you? I got something that's pretty serious. I need to talk about it. Now, one of two things can happen. They can go before the elders, and the elders can say, you know, Mark, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think I understand how you got there. And, man, I'm so thankful that you want to, like, hold sin accountable in the church. But we actually think that, that John isn't really guilty of as much as you, you're saying that he is, and so... We actually don't think this needs to go any further. Let's back up a step and let's walk through this together. That's one possibility, and praise God if that is the kind of thing that happens. But the other possibility is that the elders will see that, that Mark is right. So now we have to take it before the body. We have to take it before the church. This process of deliberation amongst the elders is kind of like a grand jury. You know, a grand jury is kind of like the trial before the trial. It's It's where you get together a jury to decide whether or not something even needs to go to trial. That's what happens when Mark brings a sin before the elders and they decide whether or not to take it to the church. So, if they decide to move forward, the elders will present the case to the congregation, most likely at a members meeting. This is where members will hear the case, they'll listen to testimony, they'll consider the matter. The matter should not be decided in this first meeting. There's nothing in Matthew 18 or in 1 Corinthians 5 that says that you should rush the process of church discipline. There's nothing about the timing in these chapters of church discipline. Rather, it seems wise and biblical to give time to let the thing unfold a little bit, time to let the Holy Spirit work through the ministry of members of the church as they go to this brother and try to lead him to repentance. Time for the Holy Spirit to work in this person's heart and maybe it will soften and they'll come to their senses. Time to let all the evidence come to light, all the moving pieces be known to all the members of the congregation. In the same way that you parents would not be quick to execute severe discipline on your children, you should probably not be too quick to move towards something so significant in the church as excommunication. Now, in our church, this usually looks like us giving the members at least six months to consider the matter. That's an arbitrary number. It doesn't have to be six months. There could be scenarios where it's four months. There could be scenarios, there have been scenarios where it's been closer to two years. But during that time, we encourage our members to reach out, 
to the unrepentant brother or sister. We pray. We seek God for wisdom. And then finally, if there's no repentance, we move to excommunication. Well, what is that? What is excommunication? You can kind of break the word down, excommunion, to be removed from communion, to not be allowed to the table of the Lord's Supper. This is the final step of church discipline. But, but you may wonder, why? Why not being allowed to the Lord's Supper? Why is that the final step of church discipline? You know, I don't know if that necessarily clicks right away. Well, it's because of the nature of what the Lord's Supper is. The Lord's Supper is the sign and seal of the covenant that demonstrates that we all belong to the same family, the family of Jesus Christ. So think about it like this. Baptism is like the front door to the family, right? That's how you come in. You've repented, you've believed in Christ, you have the outward symbol of the inward reality, and then the church looks at that and goes, oh yeah, you're part of us, come on in, you know, like grab a seat, you know, the food's up there on the counter. But then when you actually sit down at the table and have a family meal, that is the Lord's Supper. And this family meal is not open to guests. This is only for those who belong to our Father in heaven. Baptism symbolizes being buried and raised with Christ. Therefore, only believers receive it. The Lord's Supper is a symbol of Christ's body and blood, broken and shed for us. Therefore, only believers receive it. Now, if you have been baptized and received into the church, but then begin to live like someone who does not belong in the church, we can't undo your baptism. We can't undunk you. So what do we do? Well, we prevent you from coming to the continuing covenant of sign, the thing that continuously reaffirms the fact that you're part of this family, right? Like, kids are born into their family, but it's the fellowship of the family that continues to reaffirm them as members of that family. So to remove someone from the Lord's Supper is to remove that assurance. In Matthew 18, this is described as treating him as a Gentile or a tax collector, In 1 Corinthians 5, this is described as handing the person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In 2 Corinthians 2, this is described as the punishment by the majority. Each of these passages emphasizes a different aspect of excommunication, but they all point to the same thing. The church says, we don't, as far as we can tell, understand you to have a credible profession of faith, and therefore you are removed from the church. All the members of the team say, hey, we need the team jersey back because we don't think you're on the same team as us. Now, that's the process of church discipline. That's how all the widgets move. But we, we shouldn't move on from this without talking about the spirit of the process. Right? We all know that you can obey the letter of the law, but do so in a way that's out of line with the spirit of the law. And the last thing that I want for us in this church is to be you know, thinking that we're doing good because we're doing all the right things, but we're doing it in the wrong way, like Pharisees, right? So there are four traits, there are four kind of spiritual postures that we should see as a church as we practice church discipline. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just show these to you rapid fire through scripture. Uh, they are gentleness, humility, love, and weightiness. Gentleness, Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You're dealing with a brother, a sister, a member of the same family, right? You don't correct them like they're in the Taliban. You correct them like you're going to see them at Thanksgiving dinner. Number two, humility. Also in Galatians 6.1, if you were to just keep reading, after it says, correct them in a spirit of gentleness, then he says, and keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. One of the things about being a parent, man, and it is kicking my butt, is how often I will correct my kids on something and then turn right around and do the same thing. And if they see it, they will point it out without a doubt, Right? I cannot tell you how often in 
my time as a pastor, even before that, just discipling Christians, I've said, hey, I don't think you should do this. And then I've turned around and done the exact same thing. Or, hey, I think you should do this. And then when the time comes, I don't do it. Guys, hypocrisy is real. It's real. Do not think just because you know all the right answers from the Bible that you can't be a hypocrite. You are in more danger of being a hypocrite because you know all the right answers from the Bible. And by the way, you don't know all the right answers from the Bible. But you know how we are, justification by comparison. Well, they're not, they don't know that. We do. So, yeah, well, maybe you don't know it as well as you think you do. So we as a church, if we carry out church discipline with a spirit of pride, like we have it all together and, oh, well, these people, they don't, we will be in for a rude awakening. Our humility should be like the man who just falls before the altar and barely bring himself to look up to heaven. He's beating his chest. I am a sinner. That is the spirit we should have as we carry out church discipline. Love. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is speaking about uh, a brother who's about to go under church discipline or who could potentially go under church discipline. It says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is going back to what I said in gentleness, right? But the gentleness flows out of the love. The fact of the matter is, until we excommunicate someone, they need to be treated like they're still at the dinner table, like they still belong to the family. Number four, weightiness. The fourth aspect, our spiritual posture. I'm going to read a little bit before that from 2 Thessalonians. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. But do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is very weighty language. Friends, shame is not always a bad thing. Sometimes God wants you to feel shame because what you are doing is shameful in his sight. And there's something about the way that we operate as a church when we see someone doing things that are shameful before the Lord. We shouldn't just act like what they're doing is something to be happy about. That doesn't mean we have to shun them. We're not Amish. It doesn't mean we have to be self-righteous and pretentious around them. We shouldn't be. But there should be something about our demeanor that says what you're doing is a disgrace. If somebody's living in unrepentant sin and they refuse to turn from their sin and trust in Christ fully, when they come around us, everything should not feel okay. If you're married and you've ever had a massive blowout with your spouse, hopefully these are like the one, only once or twice in a marriage kind of thing, but like a big relational blow up and then you guys, you know, go to bed still mad at each other, which you shouldn't have done, but you did it. You come the next morning to the breakfast table and everything in you wants to just go back to normal. Just forget that it ever happened. Sweep it under the rug. But you know that you sinned and you know that they sinned in a way that just cannot be dismissed. It cannot be moved past. And so it feels like it the next morning. You just the way you interact with each other is just different. It can't be the same. That's what should happen in the life of the church when there's someone who refuses to follow the Lord but who still wants to profess his name. This is weighty. We are warning. Warn him as a brother. I can warn you as a brother in love and in humility and still have it be a very serious, very earnest waiting, uh, a warning. All the more so because you're my brother. Listen, if I see someone about to be hit by a big rig out there on Highway 31, I'm going to try to stop it, okay? I'm going to risk my life. I'm going to shout. I'm going to scream. I'm going to do whatever I can. But if my child is out there on the road, if my wife is out there, if my brother or my sister is out there on the road, how much more extreme will my warning be? The same thing should be true of us in the church. We warn the world, yes, sin, wrath, so on and so forth. But when we see someone who's among us, who's in our family, it's a very weighty thing, which leads us to point number four, the aim and hope of discipline. 
It's very important that we understand that in excommunication, we are not driving sheep away from the flock. We're doing two things. We are driving goats away from the sheep. And number two, we are trying to lead the sheep who have gone astray back into the flock. We're not pushing people away. We're actually trying to corral them back in. You have to understand that biblical church discipline always, 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 always aims for restoration. Consider the cry of Israel under the discipline of the Lord in the Old Testament. You have disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored for you are the Lord my God. Because I belong to you, I'm trusting you that what you're doing to me, even though it hurts, is something ultimately that will bring me back to you. This is not a shunning. You're not keeping me away from you. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. But when we, that's the church, Christians, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. When the Lord judges his people, he doesn't do that so that they will be condemned. He does it so that they will not be condemned. Listen to the way that Paul instructs the church at Corinth to deal with presumably the man in 1 Corinthians, this is in 2 Corinthians, who has been found out in his sin and then who has repented of his sin. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Friends, may we never practice church discipline in such a way that the person who's under discipline experiences excessive sorrow because of the way that we've handled the discipline. Because we've, we've acted like our intention is to strike a sheep rather than restore the sheep, to drive the sheep away rather than corral them back into our midst. Will there be excessive sorrow in dis- discipline? You better believe it. There should be every single time. But if there is, it shouldn't be because of us, because we have been cold and hard and unforgiving, unmerciful, ungracious towards the person who's repented. Church discipline is a gospel endeavor. And imagine if the Lord called us to himself, showed us our sin, showed us his holiness, we fell to our faces, confessed, cried out to the the Lord who who made a way for us to be united, and, and, and we said, God, forgive us, and he said, I don't know. I don't know if you've really learned your lesson. Not quite yet. I cannot think of something more out of step with the gospel than to turn a brother who's been caught in their sin and repented of their sin away from the body or to keep them at arm's length until they can earn their way back into our good graces. Friends, you can't earn your way back into God's graces. How dare you ever try to hold someone away from the grace of God in the church? Our hope and prayer is that whenever we begin the process of church discipline, that we don't ever have to carry it all the way through to excommunication. Our aim at every step along the way is that the unrepentant brother or sister would repent and be restored fully to a right relationship with the church. But even if they are removed, our prayer is that they come back. I was really convicted this week as I worked on this sermon and I thought about people like Jose and Tammy, and Tate. People have been excommunicated out of our church, and I thought, I haven't been praying for them. Yeah, we did everything right in the process, but even now, where is my heart towards them? Am I thinking about them? Am I desperate for them to come back? 
Or do I just kind of feel like, yeah, I did enough. What can you do? On to the next one. What kind of love is that? Yeah, we need help. We need God's help to do this, to do this well, to do this in a way that's in step with the love of Jesus. We need his help. But thankfully, he's promised it to us. Number five, objections to church discipline. I'm just going to go through these rapid fire, guys. These are the most common objections that I hear. Well, Jesus never turned anyone away. Well, while it's true that Jesus has never turned a repentant person away, he does do things like separate the sheep from the goats, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He does cast unrepentant sinners into hell. A little bit later in Matthew 25, they will go away to eternal punishment, and the righteous to eternal life. Yes, he does not turn away unrepentant sinners, but he does remove his lampstand from churches that are not walking in step with the gospel. Revelation 2.5. Consider how far you have fallen. He's saying this to a church. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The, the earthly vision of church discipline, what we can see from our human perspective is, is you know, the, the congregation uses its authority to remove someone from our midst. But the heavenly church discipline that we can't always see but is very real is when Jesus just comes and he pulls the lampstand away. Hey, I tried to tell you guys, I called you to repentance, you didn't listen, I'm taking my lampstand back. What's really scary is that these churches can continue with a big fat budget and hundreds of people on their membership roles, doing all kinds of stuff in Jesus' name, even though Jesus took his lampstand away a long time ago. Next objection. Who are we to judge anyone? I know I addressed this earlier, so I won't address this at length, but we are the church. That's who. We've been given the authority to bind and loose. We've been given the keys of... of of the kingdom to render judgments. We don't judge the world. We judge the church. We don't do it from a spirit of self-righteousness like the Pharisees, but from a place of humility and brokenness according to God's word. And when we don't get it right, we repent and we keep trying. The next objection, it's unloving. Kind of already addressed this, but the most unloving thing you can do is to let someone persist in their sin, continue down the path of hell. To ignore sin is the truly unloving thing. Consider this example. Imagine that you're in a counseling situation and a 14-year-old girl comes into your office. She's struggling with anorexia. She weighs like 85 pounds, but every time she looks in the mirror, she sees a girl who weighs 300 pounds. She cannot be convinced that she is not obese, even though she is about to die of malnutrition. She looks like she's barely strong enough to stand on her her own two legs. This is very common, this disorder. Would it be loving for you in that situation to affirm her in her deception? To say, yeah, I think you look great. The diet seems to be going well. You're really dropping weight. Keep it up. I don't want to hurt you. I only want to affirm you. Whatever you think is true of yourself is good with me. Who am I to say anything different? No, the truly loving thing in this situation, even if it hurts her, is to tell her the truth about herself. It's to hold up a mirror in front of her face and say, look at yourself. You are deceived and you are going to die because of your deception. Well, that's what we do in church discipline. We hold up the mirror of God's law before the eyes of a sinner and we say, look at yourself. You're going to die if you don't do something about this. Next objection. We'll have a reputation of being mean, which may be worse than being unloving. 
We'll have a reputation of kicking people out of the church. Yeah, probably. But our conscience will be clear before God, and at the end of the day, that's what matters. That that is not at all what we're doing. Guys, if we let the world's perception of our actions, right, consider the world lost, confused, deceived, under the, the, the rule of the prince of the power of darkness, governed by the flesh and the carnal desires of the mind, if we let them determine their perception of what we're doing, if we let that determine our, our actions, we'll never be faithful. We'll never do anything that God tells us to do. Next objection, the church won't grow. The church won't grow. Yeah, number one, that may be so. But it may not be. I'm here just talking about numerical growth. So many times, people are surprised to see that, lo and behold, when you start doing things the way that God says to do them, a lot of people start to come around. They go, huh, I haven't seen this before. I want more of that. So yeah, sometimes you start doing things that Jesus says to do in his word, and the church grows. That's what's happened in this church. About five years ago, People began to pray in this church. They began to seek the Lord. They knew something wasn't right. They were looking at God's word and they were looking at this church and they were going, something is not connecting here. And a process began of trying to change that and to try to align ourselves up with God's word. And we've grown. Have we grown at an exponential rate? No. Will Grant and I be invited to any conferences on church growth where we give away the new secret? No, probably not. But when I got here, two weeks after I got here, there were 17 people in this church. At our last members meeting, we counted 64 members. By God's grace, the church has grown even when we have begun to practice church discipline. But even if, if it doesn't grow, that's fine. Because our, our primary concern is not numerical growth, right? It's spiritual growth. We're not concerned with breadth. We're concerned with depth. So brothers and sisters, if we never have more than 64 people in this church and we just go deeper and deeper and deeper with Christ, that will be okay. If we follow Christ faithfully and do what he says to do in his word and we do it the right way and we lose all the members of this church and this church dies because of faithfulness, that will be okay. Next, people will think we're a cult. And I would say that we're not a cult, but that's exactly what you would expect people in a cult to say. So <laughs> I'm kind of in a tough spot here. Now, again, we, we can't really control people's perception of us, right? But I think it should be fairly obvious to anyone. And by the way, I use this as an example because no joke, I hear something like this like once a month from people who are hostile to the church. It should be fairly obvious to anyone who understands the occult to understand that this is not like that. Cults try to control people. They're desperate to get people in the front door. And then once they come inside, they try to get them to cut off ties with family member and friends. They try to get them to dwindle all their resources down so that even if they want to leave, they'll have no means of leaving. But in the church, yeah, it's not like that at all. We have a pretty high bar for entry. That is, you must be truly converted. On top of that, it's fairly easy to leave our church. Just tell us that you found another gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church. Fantastic. We're really happy for you. Kind of bummed that you're leaving, but you know, hey, I pray that the Lord blesses you on your way. That's not very cult-like. Anyone who's joined this church knows that uh, there's a sense in which we almost kind of just do a little pushing away as you come towards us. We're like, yeah, come on. Uh, right? Because we're excited that you want to follow Jesus. We're excited that you want to fellowship with us. We also really want to make sure you understand what you're getting into here. You see, friends, cults try to hold people hostage, but the church holds people accountable. In conclusion, one pastor has described church discipline like home exercise equipment. We all have it around, right? It's right there in the Bible. There's more about church discipline in the Bible than than most of the doctrines that we care about by a lot. So we all have it laying around, but we just don't use it. Baptist theologian John Dagg once said that when discipline leaves the church, 
Christ goes with it. I think he's right. So brothers, sisters, members of 6th Avenue, if we want Christ to be with us at 6th Avenue Community Church, let's make sure that we use this equipment that he has given us to be the people that he has called us to be for the glory of his name and for the, for the, for the good of this church and for the sake of the lost. Let's practice church discipline and do it well. Amen. We need his help. Let me pray and ask for more of it. Father, we thank you that your word is clear. We thank you that we can open it and and clearly perceive what you would have us do in light of who you've called us to be. But God, we still need more help. We need your spirit who lives in us to help us to do these things well. Left to us, left to our own devices, left to our flesh, we will ruin this, God. We will have all the right answers doctrinally, but we will employ them in a way that actually brings shame upon your name, that that does damage to the church, that hinders the mission that you've given us. So Father, help us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.